0: That's in the air, this could be hour, Jarvis underneath it, will he catch it, he's got a good hands. he's got him, yes he has, Jarvis got him in the deep, having fumbled all night, he's the big one, it went wild in the air, he's a good catch. Couch Talk Hello and welcome to Couch Talk. The guest today is former India batsman and now an accomplished commentator, Sanjay Manjrekar. He talks about the pressures of choosing cricket as a profession coming from a cricket family his unfulfilled India career, and also about his commentating career, amongst other things. Welcome to the show,
1: Sanjay. Thank you. Thanks for having me Ed.
0: It's absolutely my pleasure. You come from a cricketing family. You know, your great-uncle played for India, and you're one of the handful of cricketers whose father also played test cricket. And mm. he, was, he was considered one of the best batsmen India has produced. You know, growing up in that shadow, what was that pressure like?
1: actually had um, mostly advantages uh, one of the things that happens is there's a cricketing you know climate in the house so you as a kid you're growing up and you have this sort of misconception that you b- will become a cricketer in my case i had this you know strong mis- misconception that i would actually become a test cricketer when i grow up yeah. Cause that's what i thought you know normally happens to young players you know so that's the kind of belief that i had as a kid so that really helped, you know, because I was focused. I knew very early in my life what I wanted to be. And I played with an ambition. So I, when I look back, I think that was a great start to have for a kid.
0: From looking from another perspective, you know, it's probably a relief that uh, you would think, you know, someone would make a life choice not being a cricketer, if especially if your father was a successful cricketer in a cricket-made mad nation like India. But I guess mm. following your father in his footsteps was a natural choice for you, obvious choice.
1: Uh, yes, and you know because I lived in an area near Shivaji Park, Dadar. You know during that time cricket was the only sport, and there were so many heroes uh, you know coming out from that area, Dadar, Shivaji Park. You know Sunil Gavaskar, Sushant Gupse, Vijay Manzreekar, Ajit The list is long. Uh, so there was a strong cricketing culture, there was a lot of cricket played and high quality cricket played even in the gullies that we played in the building compounds, in the softball cricket, it was of very high quality, so that really helped, but uh, you know, I see that with my son you know, he had a little bit of interest in cricket, but I thought you know, he was slightly burdened by the fact that you know, I was an international player. My father was you a know, much better player than me, but he was almost an Indian batting great. And he, I think, chose not to go for it seriously because he thought though he was never going to be as good as us. I mean, time would have told us whether he would have eventually become that. But he just didn't want to take that uh, kind of um, um, you know, ambition or a dream. Whereas I was quite happy to have that as my sole dream, actually. I mean,
0: considering when you grew up compared to someone growing up now uh, under the shadow of their father being a test cricketer, the times have definitely changed and how cricket is perceive this change, you know, cricket was a sport back then and now cricket mm. is, is a business, you know, and mm. there is this, you know, twenty four seven scrutiny of everyone pursuing that. So perhaps mm. would would you still make that choice of becoming, you know, a Indian cricketer if you were growing up now.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, because in fact, I, actually, there is more motivation to take it up now because when I was growing up, you had to become a test player. You know, you had to be a good test uh, cricketer to make a name for yourself and make a little bit of money. nobody in our time was growing up to be a 50 overs player. And also, if you didn't make the cut, if you didn't play international cricket, life was very simple and almost hard for a first-class cricketer because there was no money in first-class cricket. There was actually one good thing that happened during our time was there was corporate support. You know, there were these companies, you know, good companies who would employ cricketers only for their cricketing skills because they would have their own company cricket team. So that was uh, sort of, uh, you know, a bit of a lifeline for guys who – failed to make the cut and play international cricket. So, you know, that is something I decided very early, that I was going to be an international cricketer, and worst worst, you know, if I don't make it, uh, I might get a decent job. In a company, and because I was a commerce graduate from Podar College, I knew you know my uh, future was pretty secure. And during our time, nobody was re- really dreaming to become a millionaire. He hmm. just needed to live a good you know middle class lifestyle, and that was fine. Those were the kind of ambitions that uh, we had, and most had at that time. Okay,
0: I mean you you briefly mentioned about the uh, Mumbai cricketers, the cricketers that came from Mumbai um you know there is this tradition of mumbai school of batsmanship and if you are a much touted top order batsman coming from mumbai you're you know you're expected to have a certain approach to your batting and your there is a lot expected of you and you're expected to deliver on the field right away and stuff you said growing in your father's shadow actually was a positive for you but this mumbai school of batsmanship was was there any added pressure when you
1: started playing for mumbai and india Just coming back to the father son thing, one of the things that happened, you know, to give you an example, say if there was an open selection trial for under 15 or under 19 cricket, and um, I turned up, you know, as as one of the candidates for selection, I would immediately get some attention because the selectors would know my father and they would say, okay, you know, his son is here, let's have a look at him. So that was the advantage I got that I got singled out. But then, once I started exhibiting whatever skills and ability that I had, then the comparison would come, you know, <laughs> where often it would go like he's not as good as his father. <laughs> but uh, as I said, you know, I had more advantages, I realized, you know, looking back, more advantages than disadvantages. But the other thing that Mumbai School of Batsmanship um, or, you know, all these stalwarts who are always hanging around club cricket and watching young talent, a few things that they always looked for was good technique as a batsman. Big appetite for runs. They were never pleased if you got out for 140 when you could get a double 100. Mm-hmm. So that is something that was drilled into us, that once you were in, you've got to get the big scores. The other thing about Mumbai school of batting was that you had to be good against fast bowlers. You know, Mumbai's batting stall was always prided always themselves on this fact, and then get the tough runs when it really matters. So these were four important uh, sort of mantras that were drilled into us, you know, when we were growing up as young batsmen.
0: When, when you made your India debut, it was already spoken that, you know, you were there, readily available to fill in the large shoes left by the retirement of uh, Sunil Gavaskar. What was your thinking process of what was expected of you in India colors and what were your own expectations of yourself?
1: Uh, you know, whenever anyone is making a debut, I think there's always self-doubt, you know. Mm-hmm. However heavily you would have scored at the first-class level. And I think at that time there was a big gap huge uh, you know, gap between first-class cricket and international cricket. Now, I think there are a lot of international teams that are not really international standard in certain conditions that they play. So I think that uh, that gap between first-class cricket and international cricket is a little reduced now. Mm-hmm. But when I was growing up, it was huge. So even if you had the backing of runs and people thought you were extraordinary as a first-class batsman, there were still doubts, self-doubts, whether you would make, um, you know, you, w- you would be able to change your game and raise your to the requirements of you know, international bowling attacks. Uh, but I remember my test debut. One emotion that takes over all other emotions, fears, and insecurities is just a uh, feeling of pride. Mm -hmm. That from now on, you know, even if I got two ducks in two innings, nobody can take this away from me that I'm now a test cricketer. Mm -hmm. It meant a big deal at that time to be a test cricketer. So that actually, you know, your first couple of test matches, you're just feeling happy to to have become a test cricketer.
0: But on your debut in the second innings you had to retire hurt because you got hit by a delivery from Winston Benjamin and you missed nearly, I think, about a year and a half of cricket for India. So you talked about briefly the self-doubts um, that creep in when you first get on the field and then you have the pride, but after this incident happened, what were your thoughts, thought process?
1: Um, actually, you know, before I got hit on my eye, i, I... Maybe batted for about an hour against a good bowling attack on a pitch that had a bit of pace and bounce. It was one of those uh, exceptional Indian pitches at Ferozha Courtline. You know, they scored hundred and actually 70 in the first uh, inning of the Test match. But just the way I was able to survive that one hour, uh, you gave me tremendous confidence. And when I got hit on the left eye, it wasn't a case of where you know I, was, I took my eyes off the ball or it seemed like I had a problem with the short ball. Mm-hmm. So it was just about that one ball taking off, and I was a little slow to react, and the ball hit my left eye. But I don't think um, it put a doubt in me that I was not equipped to play uh, fast bowling because there was a good one where I faced some serious Uh, fast bowling, a bit of fire from people like Patterson and all that. that was enough to keep me going even after the injury.
0: You know, when you made your return to the Indian team in 89 in West Indies and then in Pakistan, you know, you had one of the great runs, uh, you could say, in terms of the quality of runs you made and the amount of runs you made, you know, for any Indian cricketer in a season. But beyond that, would it be right or accurate to say that you know your your uh, india career remained a tale of uh, a tale of potential that was unrealized
1: there are two things to it i mean there's no doubt that i could have done a lot lot better could have played a lot more test matches in fact i'm actually very disappointed with how my test career finished up you know just about 37 test matches mm-hmm. i think i was good enough to play maybe 50 60 mm-hmm. and i was quite happy with the way my one-day career shaped up. You know, I mean, there were occasions when I was man of the series and all that, and I thought I would never cut out to play one-day cricket, so I'm not so uh, disappointed with the way my one-day career eventually, you know, um, how it finished up. But yes, tests, yes, and there's also, as I said, two things. One is uh, I should have done a lot better. I think my weakness was perhaps recovering from failures. Mm. I think that was my problem. I, I, I don't think I was uh, good at bouncing back from failures. Once I had a good run, I was very good. And also the other fact that sometimes, you know, when a guy has a great start, like I had in West Indies and Pakistan, mm-hmm. people tend to expect a lot more. You know, now when I look at myself, um, you know, in a detached fashion, if I, you know, if Sanjay Manjrekar, is the analyst, watches Sanjay Manjrekar, the young cricketer at the age of 21, 22. You know, I don't think I was as gifted as people thought I was. You know, I had good technique, I had good temperament and all that. But the first time that I saw, you know, somebody like sort of Ganguly or Rahul Dravid, I thought they were far more talented than I was. tendulkar was obviously in a different league. So, yeah, two explanations to the question that you asked.
0: Okay. You mentioned uh, the youngsters coming in. Did that put any sort of additional pressure on you? You know, you spoke of Tendulkar, and then there was Kambli and then in '96 you had Ganguly and Dravid
1: also coming into the team. No, I think uh, my game um, after '92-'93 uh, steadily declined. Mm. So if I felt that I was still playing really well. Then you know I would have maybe competed with these people. They had you know as there was an injury issue as well in ninety six when I missed out and Dravid came in and he got a 90 and danguly and Dravid had excellent starts to their test career. So I knew that they were going to be in there for a while. But there was still a spot left in the batting lineup for me to you know hang on to. But my game was steadily declining. And the worst thing that can happen to a cricketer if he's not playing regularly in and out of uh, the team, and if he's not playing one-day cricket, then you know, your test exposures are spaced out. And that's why I thought VVS Lakshman did a terrific job, you know, just as a test player, to have played so many test matches without the backing of um, 50 overs cricket was, I think, an incredible achievement. I realized how difficult that is to just be a test player and come, you know, after gaps of two, three months and come back and um, have the same kind of performances. Not easy. But yes, as I said, my game was steadily declining. And I used to be very harsh on myself, Uh, you know, when it came to my batting. um, I was a very harsh judge of my own uh, ability. And when I realized, you know, that the game wasn't really taking off, I was waiting for the second win to come. It never came. So I thought the best thing was to just leave the scene and be young at some other profession. Uh,
0: I want to talk about that, you being a harsh judge of your own batting. um, But first, I wanted to ask this. You know, you had uh, that century against West Indies, and then you had two centuries against Pakistan, but then you had only one more test century uh, against Zimbabwe. You know, you, you still had reasonable scores, of course. You know, you had 90s, 60s, 70s and stuff, but... You know, and you mentioned about coming from Mumbai School of batting, where you were always pride You know, looking to score big hundreds. Where did that, uh, I guess, century-making habit go away? Why did that go away?
1: I think insecurity and being too eager, anxious. Uh, I remember I made a comeback against uh, West Indies at number five or six. Uh, I think it was about 94, 95. I had made a comeback at the Wankiri Stadium. India was in trouble. Four weeks down, I walked in on both occasions. I got, I think, 50s in that match. And that was sort of a match saving and a good sort of valuable contribution. But both times, you know, I would have gone on to get 100. But because... You know, I'd got a 50 and 60. There was a sense of relief because I was struggling for runs. I felt I'd, you know, got a decent score to get, give myself a few Test matches. Uh, maybe there was a sense of relief that got me to play a shot that I shouldn't have. So, you know, all those things come into play. And finally, you know, the mind really dictates everything that you do out there. And the reason I didn't get the big scores were purely because of all all these insecurities that one has in their minds. Guys who are able to, you know, come back after a string of failures, get a 50-60, if they have a a couple of good overs, they bounce into the 70s and 80s, and then there's the 100 for the taking. But Mm -hmm. things just didn't shape out that way for me, and there were opportunities, as I mentioned, at that one-day stadium uh, in that test match. When I crossed the score of 50, there was the 100 there for the taking, which I didn't grab. And uh, after that, then you get a couple of good balls, the failures come in, and you never really establish yourself. So that second sort of surge in your batting career, uh, you know, you're waiting for, never arrives. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to me.
0: Okay. I want to go back to that. And this is a listener question from uh, Avi Singh in New Zealand. You know, you were often charged with being overly focused on achieving technical perfection at... The cost of other aspects of your batting, and you accepted that as well. He wants to know um, what advice would you have for any young batsman on how to strive for improvement without actually, you know, getting all the, all the perf- need for perfection becoming all encompassing objective?
1: Yes, uh, you know, when I analyze my own batting now, and I I could actually do that uh, even, um, you know, after I quit in a year's time, I knew exactly, uh, you know, what had gone right and what had gone wrong with my career. Uh, By nature, I'm a very self-critical person. So, uh, you know, it has it has its advantages. One is that you never take uh, your skills for granted. You're always working on them. And then you sort of get rid of most of your weaknesses because that is what you're focusing on. So when you're playing well, all that helps. You sort of make the most of what you have. But when the failures come, if you keep thinking about those failures, then, you know, you miss out on some of your strengths. And the real essence of batting is to score runs. And then you start focusing on that one weakness that has got you out and a couple of times in the previous four or five innings. You're focusing on that, and then you forget you know, why you're out there batting. So all these things come into play, and that's where I think a, a good captain or a senior player or a good coach, mental conditioning coach can come to help. Um, but you know, I mean, cricket was different in our times. Uh, players had to fend for themselves on all, all these fronts, and there were so many of them who did a very good job analyzing uh, their weaknesses. Uh, I perhaps focused a lot on my weaknesses. I wish um, you know I'd given more thought to my strengths. And uh, weaknesses would be something I would always be aware of by nature, (laughs) but I could have focused more on my strengths and maybe not tried to be, you know, the perfect sort of batting mechanism that I always uh, strive to be.
0: I mean, uh, from all the things that you've said, you know, Rahul Dravid could be saying all these things. He's someone that is hyper self-critical of his batting. I mean, this is like, I've heard Rahul Dravid talk about his batting in yes. other places. This is like absolute echo of the same thing. Um, but, uh, you know, you see the fact that he went on to become one of, you know, all time great uh, test cricketers. Like, so was it just the fact that there was somebody along the way helping him along, um, you know, refocusing him on things that uh, matter on hand that uh, made him get there? Like, what is your take on it?
1: No, I think it's the individual primarily who's responsible for, you know, his success. I mean, you get some good advice at the right time, but I think when a guy bounces back from failure, the real credit should be going to the individual. So Rahul, you know, deserves all the credit for what he achieved. In fact, you know, a couple of years after I retired, I I worried for Rahul Dravid because I could see that he was a guy who was just like me, extremely studious, intense, and would focus on, you know, one shot that he played wrongly and he got a 150 they would still focus on a couple of you know shots that he played wrongly but um, you know he he just I think uh, didn't cross that line of becoming overstudious and where I think he was uh, different from me is that he knew his limitations very early hmm. he knew uh, you know what were the gifts of a Ganguly or a Saivag or a Tendulkar and he never sort of uh, went away from his core strength which was about defense tremendous mental reserves. I think on that front, he was far superior to me as a batsman. He had, I think, great mental reserves where he would you know, play two tough innings and he was ready for another one in the mm-hmm. third. And even after failures, he would be willing to just hang in there. And had he crossed the score of 50 or 60 like I did on my comeback, he would have gone on to get those 200s in those two innings. So that's where he was different. Uh, You know, that's, I think, uh, the difference uh, that you could see. There are a lot of similarities, actually, between the way Rahul uh, thinks and the way we batted as well. But obviously a couple of very important uh, um, uh, dissimilarities in him and me. Fair enough. You know,
0: you've made a very successful transition from being a player to being a commentator slash pundit. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, what um, helped you in making the transition? You know, what were the things that uh, you knew coming into the job and what were the things that you had to learn on the job? And, you know, what kind of people and who are the people that you were learning it from?
1: I thought, uh, you know, I took to this job like fish to water. You know, I'm not saying that I'm very good at it, but uh, the job came very easily to me uh, just because uh, it was just a natural sort of extension of my personality. Uh, when I was playing cricket, you know, I watched a lot of stuff uh, going on. You know, when I was uh, uh, in the nets, for example, when I had to finish batting, I would watch the bowler's bowl or, you know, other batsmen bat. So I was very interested in others as well. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, Tendulkar who naturally, I used to watch him, he was very focused on his own batting. Once he finished his batting, he would start bowling and then he'd start taking catches. He didn't spend too much time, you know, watching others or analyzing others and which is, I think, one of the reasons why he was, so great. Uh, I was uh, the exact opposite. I was very interested in how somebody else was bowling and batting. So, as I said, you know, commentating was just uh, a natural sort of transition for me.
0: Yeah. Every commentator has his own voice, a distinct style in how they communicate the cricket to the audience. And I'm assuming you had to find your own voice as well, your own space. What was that process like?
1: Uh, no, I, I just I was myself, you know when it started, I used to just react to what I saw on the field, and that that was it. So it was very much uh, my my nature that came into play, my views on the game and things like that, you know the way I spoke, or you know the opinion that I had, the observations that I made, the analysis and all that. And somewhere down the line, people have found you know some strength uh, that I had. And maybe that's the reason that I'm I'm still around. Obviously, uh, you know, the commentators, there's, uh, if you go into a room filled of people, um, say 10 people there, and if you ask them uh, about a certain commentator, Mm -hmm. there'll be four or five will say, you know, I love him. And there'll be four or five (laughs) will say that I hate him. (laughs) So that is something that comes with the job. But uh, I I didn't really work at uh, creating my own style. It, It was just me being myself in front of the mic.
0: Okay, here's a question from uh, Clayton Marcello of Midday for you. Of course, Clayton, um,
1: yeah. <laughs> say it again. Yeah, Clayton. Clayton is a dear friend.
0: Okay. So his question is: Do you understand now the role and pressures on commentators and writers better than what you did in the playing days?
1: Yes, I think um, you know there was uh, more sort of free spirited commentary in the early days. And I don't think uh, it has changed only in India. I think all over the world, uh, commentators are a little more careful about what they say. Initially there was, you know, it was almost like, um, you know, the kind of chat that you have in a private room around a cricket match. we openly critical of players and uh, the banter used to be a lot more uh, free. And it's, you know, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't that much discipline. I think uh, overall, when you look at international commentary, uh, the commentators have grown to realize that uh, they are, uh, it's a much more responsible job than they think. You know, the, they realize that they have a big platform and they've got to be very careful about, you know, what they say. Cricket is a sport where, you know, the action comes in spurts and there are, there's a lot of idle time. Where the only connection with the match is to the voice of the commentator, so his voice becomes very important, and I think commentators have realized that, and understandably are just a little more careful about what they say
0: uh, i believe uh, i think uh, clayton 's question uh, let me phrase it differently you know there was a time when Bob Willis was a player in one thousand nine hundred and eighty one after England won the ashes. you know he had a go at the media. You know, the people that doubted him and the team and so on and so forth. But then once he transitioned to becoming a media person himself, you know, he was doing the things, um, you know, that he railed against the media persons about. See what I mean? So when you were playing, you know, the people that covered you, uh, they may have Mm -hmm. said not very pleasant things, nice things about you, your career, your batting failure, success, so on and so forth. But when you put on the hat of the pundit, do you see, you know, uh, okay, I see why they were critical of me or, you know, why you should be critical of someone else?
1: I tell you what, when I was a player, you know, I realized very early after a good tour of West Indies that uh, when I had a good tour and I read some of the articles written about me and I... You know, at the end of it, I would say, was I that good? Because there were such flowery articles, you know, praising me to the skies and things like that. And I said, you know, I wasn't that good. So I realized very early that uh, there is always an exaggeration when it comes to covering of a performance. Uh, especially I think uh, from people who haven't played the game at the highest level, they tend to react in that fashion a little more than people who have played or a little more clinical. Uh, And obviously when you fail, the reaction also on that front is um, always um, what you call an overreaction. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I learned to do very early as well is that when you fail, you know exactly why you're failing. You don't need to read the papers for that, and you also know exactly what's going to be written about you. There's going to be criticism. So when I didn't have a good run, I didn't bother to read the papers uh, too much, because I knew there would be criticism of my performance. And also, I think I, I didn't really pay too much attention when I was playing well as well, because very few articles were able to um, you know, do complete justice. I thought they were, you know, as I said, um, exaggerating or being too complimentary and when you're, of course, failing, and then uh, it's the other extreme. Okay. So, you know, I didn't have an issue with media people. Absolutely not. I could understand the job they were doing. And my, you know, always my way of handling them was to be indifferent. You know, indifference was uh, <laughs> my sort of shield against media people.
0: Uh, as a follow-up to uh, Clayton's question, I have one for you. Um... You know, I received a bunch of questions when I announced on social media that uh, you're going to be on the show. And uh, these questions, I'm only presuming that they were sent in jokingly. It was that, why does Sanjay not like Sachin? You know, I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming they are referring to, you know, your columns and your opinions and various things that uh, you may have said as a pundit. You know, because that's your job, you know, to give your opinions on cricketing matters, no matter who the player is. So, you know, when you do, you sometimes get these emotional backlash. How do you learn to deal with these?
1: Uh, Never easy, you know, because I think Arshav Ogleb once said that touching Tendulkar is an irrational topic in (laughs) India, in an Indian cricket. So I can understand that. It's a big difference with me and the others when it comes to Tendulkar that I saw him as a 14-year-old. And I saw him grow into a cricketer. So, uh, you know, I never could make myself look at him as the god of the game, as, you know, the fans look at him. I was never in awe uh, in the way that, uh, you know, the fans are or a lot of people are. I mean, I was... uh, completely bowled over by the talent and, you know, something that I saw very early. So uh, that is something that I've always admired. But it was always a more uh, sort of, uh, you know, clinical way of looking at the Indulkar. And because I'd seen him from close quarters, um, uh, I always thought he was a child prodigy. And that's... That's what my expectations from Tendulkar was, as he became an adult at the international level. And there were occasions when, you know, he disappointed me with uh, what he was doing on the field. And those were the kind of, you know, observations that I made. As I said, you know, those were observations made by a guy who knew his subject really well. And, uh, you know, there wasn't uh, that aura uh, that I felt when it came to Tendulkar that the others felt. And I sort of... Uh, just wrote those articles out of uh, that emotion, and very often when I've written anything about Tendulkar that's not complimentary, I've always been surprised by the backlash, because I, I would always think that I was making an observation on a player, and similar observations would have been made on a lot of other players, mm-hmm. but with Tendulkar it's, it's, it's a little different. So there's nothing about liking or disliking, but in his long career, there have been patches where he's disappointed me as a batsman that I saw from very close quarters. Uh, and uh, I think over the years, those uh, points were raised. And if I had written maybe 120 columns on Tendulkar, there would have been two or three, but people will remember <laughs> the two or three that were critical of Tendulkar. That's, that's, that's the situation with uh, Tendulkar.
0: Fair enough. Um... Another there is another question on commentary, um, and this comes from Shoaib Naveed. and it's about the effect of the commentary team around you um, in how it dictates the quality of your commentary. You know, does it? Do you feed off of your uh, colleagues in the box? Uh, you know, he feels Shoaib feels that you're brilliant in the Sky Box, and you know, perhaps fluctu- slightly fluctuating at when you do it with star and then not so well at 10 sport. So do you also feel the
1: same way? Uh, I think fellow commentator. Yes. You know, there are certain commentators that you love working with. Um, you know, you get into interesting areas of cricketing talk and then, you know, the content gets richer. If you have a fellow commentator, uh, who is on the same page, you know, so the overall, uh, quality of the content gets richer when you have two people talking about something, digging deeper into any cricketing aspect. So that certainly helps. But I don't think uh, with companies uh, it makes that much of a difference, at least mm-hmm. for, for me. When I'm working for 10 sports, my approach is no different from the way it is when I'm working for Star or for Sky. Uh, fellow commentator, yes. Sometimes you know you feel the need to raise your game when there's somebody next to you, somebody like a Michael Holding. You know when he sits next to me, <laughs> immediately I realize, oh God, here's a very intelligent cricketing person sitting here, and it just sort of uh, you know shakes you a bit out of your comfort zone and gets you to raise your game even further. Although you know you're never in your comfort zone when you're um, when you know you're live and uh, people are watching the game, and I never <laughs> lose sight of the fact, also. That people actually tune on the television to watch cricket, not to listen to us. So I also never uh, lose sight of the fact that we are not that important to the coverage.
0: You know, some of the players that you played with and against are also commentators now, of course. And some of them have become caricatures of themselves. You know, performers in their own way, even after you know they have done playing cricket you know, uh, for example, a Navjot Singh Sidhu or a Danny Morrison or a Ravi Shastri, you know, is there an incentive towards being that way? And if so, like, how does one resist that? Did you have to resist, you know, becoming one of them or, you know, one of those types of performers on air?
1: It's a personal choice that everyone makes. Uh, what typically happens is when you start off your career as a commentator, mm-hmm. uh, you sort of get a certain kind of feedback from your producer and, you know, you see um, how fans uh, react to you when they see you, you know, in daily life, and they'll say something that we enjoy, this part of your commentary or something like that. So very early, I think a commentator gets a sense of what people especially like about your commentary. And then it's up to you, you know, how much you want to then invest in that element of your commentary. And that's, I think, what uh, most uh, commentators get into. Uh, they uh, realize this is what people like and this is what I'm going to work on. And uh, the obvious advantage is the producer is happy with uh, you bringing that element into commentary. Obviously, uh, you're assured of another offer next time. So your job is secure. So you try to work on that and keep the producer happy. But the one thing that I've realized, you know, however good you are and things like that, the, the one thing that never helps a commentator is overexposure. Um, you could be the best commentator in the world, but if the fans, you know, get to hear you all the time, you start getting on to their nerves. You know, it's something that cannot be helped. So that's something I think every commentator has to be careful about because it's an it's a no-win situation that one.
0: Hmm. All right, we'll leave it at that, Sanjay. Thanks a lot for uh, spending this morning with me. That's in the
1: air, the Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm a big one. It went wild in the air. i of a good captain. stop.